Welcome back to another episode of Legally Unfiltered, guys. It's Richard Sprinkle here with attorney Franz Borghardt and some special guests in the studio today. Today we've got Jimmy Manassa and Andre Belanger from Manassa, Gil Knipe and Belanger. And we're going to wrap up talking about the big trial they just won out in California with one certain Kentrell Golden, also known as NBA Youngboy. And I'm going to kind of stay out of the way of this one because I wasn't there. You guys know way more about what happened at that trial than I did. So, Well, just to, just to, real quick, who is NBA well, Youngboy? Well, as, as you know, our listeners, they paid attention. They listened they, to last Hopefully time. they watched the last one or listened to the last one. But for those who missed class, NBA Youngboy is a local rapper here from Baton Rouge. His, his actual name is Kentrell Golden. Um, great guy from what we understand. He's, he's just a real nice, humble individual who's got a lot of success in the music industry right now. And um, he was facing some really serious gun charges. Uh, the federal government had him uh, in their crosshairs for some uh, charges that could have put him away for a significant amount of time and seriously damaged his career and Frankly, if a artist in the music industry's career gets damaged, a lot of other people suffer too. So why don't you guys take away and tell us, tell us what's going on with the case? Well, so he gets picked up in California, and we get it ready to go try the case. This case had, um, you know, it's a felon in possession of firearms, so they said that there was a gun found in his car when he was arrested. Right. And he'd only had the gun, he'd only had the car for a couple of days, and there were people out there visiting, and somebody left gun in the car. So it's a new car? It's a brand new stinking car. Brand new stinking car. And it's a rocket ship. It's Um, a uh, Maybach SUV. A a, a Maybach SUV. I can only imagine how nice this thing must be. So they had, they, they, they make this arrest. Um, they scare him when, when they go to stop him, when they go to stop him, um, instead of calling us and letting us turn him in, they decide they're going to make this as I think Andre called it shock and awe. And so what they do is they have him under surveillance, his house under surveillance. He leaves the house. They go to stop him. He has no idea that why he's being stopped, but they go to pull his vehicle over. They put on lights and sirens, and they've got all kinds of undercover officers that are also there. They put on the lights and sirens. He stops his vehicle just like anybody would stop, thinking that there's an emergency vehicle. Sure. Let me stop my car so they can go around. The officer gets kind of behind him. He stopped in the middle of the street. He slowly starts to turn. They turn the sirens off. So he's confused now. Are they really trying to stop him? Or, or what are they doing? So they stay right. behind him. He takes a right into the first side street and stops his vehicle. Did they claim he flew? Fled? Yeah, they were claiming he, yeah. he was oh, fleeing at that point. He was not cooperating with them when it, he was doing everything that a normal person would do. So he stops his vehicle, and he does what also an African, a young African-American male would do. He sticks his hands out the car to show that he's not armed. Right. And so instead of the officers walking up to him to ask him for his license, you know, insurance, registration, they get out of the car. The two officers take defensive positions behind the the two doors, and at at least one of the officers draws a weapon on him, and they're yelling at him and telling him to move. You have five or six, seven other officers. They even claimed it was a procession of police cars pull up behind. Officers get out of the car. We have video that we were able to get in front of the jury that showed officers getting out and running to the front towards his vehicle with hands-on weapons. Fully vested. Fully, yeah, and, you know, uniformed and ununiformed that are all running up to the front, all these cars, and quite frankly, they just scared him. So what what was the reason behind the stop? So he was indicted here in Baton Rouge. Right. Um, and so they were going to arrest him on that warrant. Ah, uh, gotcha. Okay, um, all but right. But instead right. of calling us to say, hey, remember that arrest from a few months ago, we've indicted him, why don't mm. you bring him into the marshal's sure, office? Sure, sure. 
They, they went. They went shock and awe. Yeah, shot the yeah, uh, Franz and I have had a case before where um, the predicate stop was a, a burned out light bulb over a license plate. Yeah. Well, he However, done, he, he done nothing wrong. You know, our, I mean, there's like no traffic violation. So he had so, no idea so, why was being pulled over. So what's interesting to me is it is 2022 today. Yep. This happened in what 2021. How many times? I mean, one of the the one of the recurring themes is the need to protect officers and to mm-hmm. keep them safe. Correct. Mm-hmm. Why not? And we talked about this in the first segment. I guess my, I keep coming back to. This is a high-profile celebrity individual. What did they think he was going to do? He can't disappear. I mean, no, he's not. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. It's, so, they could have called us, and we could have turned him in, and then sure. everything would have been fine. No big deal. So when the vehicle ultimately stops, he, he, he flees from him. He does flee at that point and goes about a mile, and he stops, and he jumps out, and he runs and hides. And they arrest him. You know, he's, he can't go anywhere to hide, so he's, he's found pretty quickly. But as they are looking for him, you have two FBI agents, uh, and they're cross-designated. They're, they're local police, but they're working with the task force, the FBI task force, and two officers. And thank goodness, Los Angeles Police Department have body cams. You know, the FBI, they don't wear body cams. Well, they don't record anything. They don't record, they don't anything. record conversations. Mm-hmm. There's no body cams. So we would not have known about what really, truly happened at the scene had it not been for a police officer out there with a body cam and it caught the majority of what was going on. Yeah, and to put in the context, these officers with the body camera, they've set up the perimeter that they've set up the perimeter to protect the car mm-hmm. and, and people coming in and out of the scene. So this is just them setting the perimeter, but we're able to catch angles from them. Did that with come? Their body did that, was that important later? It was. Oh, absolutely. So what happens is they come and the, the the allegation is is that they find a gun on the back seat floorboard on the passenger side. Mm-hmm. And that gun is a tan-colored gun on a dark carpet, and it's sitting at a perfect right angle right behind the passenger seat. Mm-hmm. And they're saying that that's where the gun wound up after all this turn and chase and humps. And we have video where it went over a speed hump and all this. And they're saying that this gun could magically wind up at this perfect right angle. But, and that's the way the case would have progressed had there not been this video. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because they tried to make it sound like the first officer that actually found the gun was the inventorying officer who comes about 45 minutes after these initial officers go into the vehicle. Mm. And we believe that they did not even understand that because of the way they presented the case. Uh, we, we don't know if they watched the videos as closely as we did. We had to watch hundreds of hours of video frame by frame by frame so to find out what was, happened. At the time of the, the stop, and by stop, I mean the L.A. stop, which is what you guys were there to try. How many people were in the vehicle, and where was he sitting? It was just him. He was driving okay. the vehicle. So, so he's, he in the dri- he's driving the vehicle. Yeah. So normally, in, in my felon in possession cases, the individual driving, if they are, quote, unquote, possessing the firearm, the common sense would be that it would be in, in reach of where they are. That's right. Right even if it's on the floorboard. But the firearm that you're talking about in this case was where? Back seat. Back seat. Right. And, and in order to be guilty of possession of a firearm, they got to prove two things. They, they got either have to prove that you're in actual possession, like I'm holding my phone right now. I'm holding mm-hmm. my phone. I'm in actual physical possession of my phone. Right. I know what it is. I can, I can, can mm-hmm. show that. I'm also in constructive possession of things that may not be in my physical possession, but that I have an intent to control it. I have dominion and control. control. Yeah. Okay. You know, but in order to have dominion and control, I still have to know that it's there. So right. the million right. million dollar question is, 
I'm sure, I'm quite sure they did a physical forensic analysis of the firearm to see if there was physical biological material in there. Oh, they did. They did. And you'll be surprised to know and disheartened that the FBI claims that you really can't lift prints or DNA off of weapons at this point. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. That's yeah, like you want to order the Bureau, transcript. The it's like a waste of money. The Federal Bureau of Investigation <laughs> testified to that? Oh, yes. I've actually heard that on really good authority from some firearms experts who used to work for a certain state, Louisiana's, um, uh, lab, that, that guns are, are horrible. You can, the only place you can get a, a print is usually on the on the uh, magazine. You well, so the interesting thing here is so they, they, they send the magazine out for prints and the gun out for DNA, but they don't cross-pollinate to do the other two tests. Uh, and then when those experts take the stand... They say, oh, you really can't lift prints off of these darn things. <laughs> and you know what? Um, it's hard to get DNA, but uh, we can't get DNA off of bullets. You can't get DNA off of magazines. Well, wait a minute. But so, but here's, here's the thing with the DNA. Five profiles were on this gun. Oh. So, so there was DNA, just not your clients. They, they had five profiles. And under FBI policy, when you get to five profiles, they make no conclusions at all. But because of the XY chromosome analysis, they could say that at least one was a female. All right, so of the five people that may have manipulated the gun, one was a female. Was a female. Um, I would assume, well, I mean, I've got so many questions here. So, okay. You have police officers, you have FBI agents that went into the car that didn't have gloves on either. So there oh could be cross-contamination. Correct. Right. Was there and any... they're also moving the gun around the car too, which is fabulous. So of the profiles, were was there any evidence that linked... Obviously, the argument of the government is going to be, well, it's you, in his car. Your profile was in that gun. Right. Your profile was in I'm that sure. gun. I'm sure. Everybody's profile. That's the reason they can't sit there and say it's anybody. Okay. But what they do by failing to handle it properly. Is they el- eliminate they, your ability to yeah, actual. that's yeah. exactly right. They, they prevent us from exonerating him. So yeah. you have these two agents that go into the car, and we have video of it. One of them goes into the front seat, face first, head first into the car. He's in the car for 12 seconds. He do, when he comes out, he doesn't tell any of the other officers there's a gun in the car. He doesn't go to seize the gun. He doesn't announce on the radio that they found a gun. He obviously doesn't see a gun on the floorboard on the back seat, and he's headfirst in there, okay? Then you have a second officer that shows up just a couple minutes later. He goes into the vehicle, okay? Now, he tells the jury that the reason he went into the car was to see if there were any other suspects there, which is just you know, just not true, right? okay? And he doesn't go in with a weapon pulled or anything like that. And, in fact, on the video, he tells the other officer, I want to see if it's unlocked. So he goes in, he then goes into the back seat of the car, and we can see him in the back seat manipulating his hands, doing something. Now he has opened the back seat driver's side, and he never sees the gun that supposedly so, is on the floorboard. So let's take a step back. Your client at this point is detained, under arrest, whatever, not doesn't have any control over the vehicle. Right. The vehicle's not going anywhere. Right. This is Los Angeles. Right. I mean, not not Podink Baton Rouge. We got some good law enforcement here. But, like, this is Los Angeles. We would expect them to have things like, dare I say, gloves and and procedures to collect or process a crime scene, which well, but, is what we're talking about is is arguably. And, but so what happens, and these two officers are going in are FBI task force. Oh. And so what happens is, so he doesn't say anything about seeing a gun. And, and how can you stand at the open door looking in for 30 seconds and not see a gun if it's on the floorboard on the other side? So what he does then is he then goes around to the other side. We see him open the pass, uh, the passenger side back door, which is where the gun is. And they have photographs to show, you know, like exactly where it is on the floorboard. We see him bend down and go in on his hands and knees in the car. What he was doing, obviously, is he was pull, he, he pulling the gun 
out from underneath the seat. Mm. So, so there's no way that young boy, there's no way Contrell knew that the gun was there. So we don't we don't have a huge amount of time, but I want to talk about whose gun was it? I mean, for, through the evidence, whose gun was this? Well, the, the, they, they can trace it to a purchaser here in Baton Rouge. Okay. And, and they had the gun shop owner from the local store that everyone knows about coming and testify. So that, that, that can be established who bought it. Now, the well, I meant, interesting— I meant, I meant your theory of how the gun got in there. Well, there's a lot of people with control. So in the car, yeah. in the car you had a key to the Beverly Hotel— Okay. The night before closing argument, we get evidence that shows a video of Kentrell and three other people in the Beverly Hotel doing a YouTube live. Mm-hmm. We have a flight itinerary from somebody else. We have a monster receipt from a uh, fast food seafood company for about six or seven people. And when they were doing surveillance, they saw another car with other individuals leave before Kentrell even leaves the house. So there's at least eight or nine people that were with him in the okay. day of and the day before the arrest. So it is not often that we as defense attorneys have evidence to present. You guys had how many witnesses? We presented none. They, they, okay. they called 15, oh, 16 total. Okay. Um, was there a period of time where you guys thought about maybe putting on your rebuttal, I'm going to call rebuttal experts, like, for example, the firearm? This visit. officer this officer that didn't, um, that went down on his hands and knees to pull the gun, they didn't have him on their witness list. The first officer I told you about that went in the car, he wasn't on their witness list. They didn't call the only two people that supposedly got into the car first that could have seen the gun at any time, and they weren't going to call him. So we were actually, we had him under subpoena so that we could call him. We had a couple of other um, officers under subpoena so we could get certain evidence in, but we were allowed to get the evidence in, so we didn't really need to call him. Okay. So I alluded to the fact that it is very hard to get a not guilty in a federal case. And you guys have laid a, a groundwork for, for reasonable doubt of, look, you know, I mean, my immediate thought was, this is a guy that's in the music industry. I would would suspect he has bodyguards. I would suspect that he has people, you know, security, whether they have firearms or not. I mean, but I didn't even think about kind of the, the how many people are around this guy on a regular basis that may possess the firearm and left it in the back seat. They also don't use real guns in music videos too. Talk a little bit about that. Because um, that's, I got to tell you, I, I, I didn't even think about that, but I'm sure everybody believes it's a real you, gun. You, you can get 100% looking replicas of real guns, and that's commonly used in music videos and entertainment. Obviously, sometimes people use real guns and try to modify them, and it goes wrong. Just look at Alec Baldwin in mm-hmm. California. But the music industry, Hollywood, does use lookalike guns. You can't use like a Nerf gun in a music video. No. I mean, you would be laughed off the stage, you would never have a clue. So does a replica or a lookalike gun actually function beyond being a replica? It can fit the same sights, silencers. But it doesn't fire. It fires pellets. Pellets, okay. Non-lethal so pellets. Non-lethal, okay. And it's and not classified it, a firearm by federal law. Also, That's what I was really getting at. And yeah. law enforcement uses them also for purposes of, because it's safe, mm-hmm. uh, it's not cheap. lethal, it's cheap, they don't have to spend that money on ammunition. So trial lasted four days. Um, ultimately, it was an acquittal. Um, we talked about in the first segment how significant that is. Um, there is, and I know you're limited to what we can talk about, there is a charge still pending here. Um, can, what can you, I, I, I don't want you to go into anything inappropriate, obviously, and I, nor would you, but what can you say about what's going on here, if anything? Well, the, the public record shows that he was indicted. Um, it shows that we had a motion to suppress that was granted in part. 
Mm-hmm. Literally within a half hour of coming here, the government has filed its notice of intent to appeal that decision. To the Fifth Circuit. To the Fifth Circuit, which means that our status conference to pick a trial date is kind of moot at this point because mm-hmm. now the trial court would be divested of jurisdiction. And we'll just have to see what happens with that. Can you, I guess the real question of what I was trying to get at is, what are the char- can you tell us what the charges are pending here? Yeah, it's a felony position. Okay, so it's similar. It's, okay. Um, any indication whether or not the government intends to try to introduce what happened in California under what we could call other crimes evidence, which would be, I guess, would be pro- problematic for them being that he was just acquitted of it, which is, I know it's a different legal standard, but. That they have not given us any 404B, which is the evidence rule. Yeah, that, yeah. Okay. He is out, though, right? He's not, he's not under detention. So um, huge victory for you guys. Huge victory. I mean, yeah. I mean. We talked about this earlier. You and I have seen it. For the federal government to get a conviction on felon in possession of firearm is is one of the simplest things. Well, they, let's they can let's just do. be even more specific. Generally, the fe- federal system cherry picks the best of the best cases. Sure, it's not, and I'm not saying that they don't have highly competent assistant U.S. attorneys. They do. It's it's really good prosecutors, really good smart individuals. But they also get to cherry pick. They don't the bring shaky cases. Yeah, and, they and don't look, bring as the former cases, prosecutor right. in the room, I will tell you. I mean, I was only a prosecutor for like 10, 11 months. You were a prosecutor in 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 Orleans. Orleans. Yeah, Orleans. How long were you a prosecutor five there? Five years. Yeah, so five years. If you had a really bad case, one of two things probably would happen. At least for me, either one, I wouldn't charge it, or two, I would negotiate it out in such a way that it was a deal that couldn't, you know, that was, and I say really bad case, a problematic case. If I didn't believe that the individual did it, I wouldn't bring a case. Um, the feds, first of all, their caseload is much different. Now, I don't know how the caseload is for, for in Los Angeles. I would assume it's different than in, in the middle district of Louisiana. Yeah, it is, and they have a thousand assistant U.S. Yeah, attorneys. So, too. But the caseload yeah. here is, is nominal. We're, we're the smallest judicial district, I'm on the impression. Okay. The middle district is like, the smallest one. Okay. Hmm. Well, you guys certainly did a, did a great job out in California, and I'm sure you'll do a great job here. Um, this case is relevant to, I guess, us in Baton Rouge because, you know, there is a belief that the music industry is the spawn of Satan and, and does all the crime and is the cause of all crime. So we appreciate Jimmy Manassa and Andre Belanger coming in and joining us. Again, if people want to get in touch with you guys real fast, real fast, how would they get in touch with you? 225-927-1234, and we're on Jefferson Highway. Love it. We're, we're, we're fortunate. We have a number of attorneys that allows us to do this type of, it allows us to do a case like this. Um, you know, most people, if it's like a one- or two-person shop, they wouldn't have the resources to, to match up against the feds. Mm-hmm. Well, it goes back to what you said earlier is if he's indigent and he has one. Have- and look, I do in- – we all, everybody in this room, I know Andre does, I know you've done it. We, we all represent indigent individuals in the federal system through sure. the Criminal Justice Act. And, you know, even, even still, you know, it's hard when, you're, when, when you have to get approval for funding on certain things, which the federal, the federal system will approve. But it's hard when you don't have enough money to get an expert, when you don't have the resources to sit there and take the, I mean, how much, how much time do you think you spent watching videos? Well, Jim, Jim, Jimmy Larry spent the last four or five months yeah. of his life Almost doing nothing day, but this day. one thing, you know, and, and you're not going to, I mean, that's just hard to I mean, define. watching the video frame by frame. Yeah. Over and over and <clears throat> over. And we found, what happened was we found that there were two shadows 
of the door frames. That's why I was able to prove and show that he was in the back of the car. And if he's in the back of the car and he can't see that gun, he's not credible with anything else that he said. Right. Um, and the officer said also in testimony that he didn't touch anything on the inside of the car. And we could see him in this video touching, moving things. He had some jewelry bags in the back of the car. And right. so he's manipulating going through the jewelry. But because I spent so much time going through every single frame, I was able to show shadows of door frames open. Shadows and, and, and again, of doors. And yeah, again, shadows. what color was the carpet in the SUV? Kind of a dark blue, black carpet with a brown tan gun. And flat, it was just, flat I mean, it darker, as they yeah, call you it. You couldn't yeah. miss it. So what, what baffles me is, what baffles me is the belief and the testimony that you can't extract DNA or fingerprints from a firearm. <laughs> like, love it. like I, I have I mean, heard, true, and I, at least under, I understand the <laughs> argument. Like, why bother? So I will say this. I've always understood the argument of a shell casing that's on the ground with the combustion that happens in a firearm. I, I'm willing to wrap my head around, you know, hey, look, we don't expect to find DNA on a but shell casing. Not when you push it down. Yeah, yeah, but a <laughs> bullet in a firearm in a clip, you know. So anyways, we're about out of time. Richard? Going. You got you got a few seconds. I, I know we're about out of time, but we're going to wrap it up again. Jimmy, one more time. How do they get in touch with you? Manassa Gill, Knipe, and Belanger at 225-927-1234. Uh, do, we have more attorneys that do this type of work than anybody. We've got a dozen lawyers that do criminal defense. You guys are a full service, though. Civil, yeah, we do civil criminal injury. defense. We, do. we yep. just... We represented a police officer in a well, bad car accident. Well, I, we admire good work. You guys did a great job out in L.A. Certainly a lot of work happened, or a lot of hard work went into it. So, Andre, Jimmy, thank you guys. That's about it for this episode of Legally Thanks, Unfiltered. We'll be back next week with another episode. And look, www.legallyunfiltered.com. The views and opinions expressed in Legally Unfiltered do not constitute legal advice. If you would like legal advice on the topics that we've discussed, send us money. That's right. Go ahead and retain us. Do not, kids, try this at home.